Welcome to The Report Card with Nat Malthus, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. To put it lightly, 2021 has been an eventful year in education. From COVID in schools to heated school board meetings over class curriculum and fierce debates regarding mask and vaccine requirements, we've had no shortage of education headlines this year. For the last episode of 2021 on the report card, I wanted to take a look back at these highlights and discuss the year's biggest stories. Of course, who better to have that discussion with than the reporters who wrote them? Today, we have three talented reporters on the podcast, Erica Green, Laura Meckler, and Isha Pendarker. Erica is an education correspondent at the New York Times, where she covers Department of Education and Federal Education Policy. Laura Meckler is a national education writer for the Washington Post, covering the same federal education beat. And Isha is a reporter at Education Week, where she covers race and opportunity in schools and specializes in data reporting. Erica, Laura, Isha, welcome to the report card. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you. So before we got you all on here today, I asked you to come with a little bit of mind of reviewing the year for what what the year's biggest education stories were. So let's trip down those. Laura, I'll give you first cut. What was the biggest education story of 2021? So I think that the biggest story of 2021 was the beginning of the recovery from COVID. As teachers and students got back into schools and back into classrooms, almost everybody found that it was really rough, that there had been a lot of losses, um, both academic as well as just behavioral, um, social, emotional, just the ability to be together in a community like a school. And um, I think we started to see uh, both the depth of the problem. Um, everyone knew there were going to be challenges, but it was, it was really pretty rough. Um, and we also started to see the beginning of trying to dig out. I had one principal tell me that we thought that this year was going to be just like 2019, but just with masks, when in fact, it's like 20, uh, 2020, but in the building. In other words, just as chaotic, just as challenging as it had been last year, but just with everybody together. So I think that that, I think there's a lot to talk about, a lot of big stories, but that's where I would start. Well, for sure, COVID was the biggest story, not just in education, but in the world. Isha, Erica, the tendrils that like spread from that could go in so many other directions. Uh, anything that you would highlight uh, uh, about that that you know we should just remember before I, I ask you for your stories? Isha? Yeah, I think uh, Laura mentioned it, but I do want to point out the uh, coverage pretty heavily focused on student and teacher trauma this year, everything that they'd been through over the past year, which was, I think it's an important coverage topic. And I'm glad to see that everyone, everyone covered it a lot, uh, talking about what students had been through at home and now in school buildings with the constant, you know, outbreaks causing schools to go remote this year. And uh, even teachers having to deal with, you know, hybrid learning, and working so much more than they were working in school buildings to kind of balance those two. So I think the, the highlighted trauma um, of, the, of the whole pandemic was an important topic that I'm glad to see got coverage. Yeah, and I, you know, I'd say the same. Uh, my last story of the year was, was um, out of a school in Pennsylvania 
Um, and, and I had actually gone there um, with the idea to write about their wellness center to anchor a piece about mental health. And I walked away um, from the first visit saying, no, I need to document what it's like to just exist in a school building. Um, I think, you know, throughout the, pa the, the pandemic, getting kids back into physical buildings was almost seen as like the panacea for all. Um, and everyone thought that once we got them in there, that would be it. And that was not the case. You know, it's, it's not, you know, I don't want to feed this narrative that is just, you know, trauma and mayhem everywhere. But I think, frankly, what we see is that like, everything that was that existed in schools, all of the systems and structures that were already fractured just completely bent under the pressure of all of these other um, societal and, and health crises. And, um, and, you know, I actually hadn't seen a lot of focus on on teacher mental health until obviously, you know, some districts started taking mental health days. Um, and I took a different approach and, and wrote that story through the eyes of a principal um, because A, we don't hear from them a lot in this debate. Um, B, they run buildings and really principals are kind of this invisible glue that keeps schools together um, and they're very much falling apart. So it's happening at, at every level. And I think the breadth of, of education coverage has really touched um, each population of the community this year. And that was really heartening to see. Yeah, I mean, if you just think back over the year and over the, the dramatic, pattern of changes. I mean, there's been all this recovery, but part of it has just been this time last year, you know, one in three school districts across the nation were fully remote and going to stay that way for another couple of months. This year, we're in a totally different operating situation where almost no one's fully remote. And that's a huge journey over just 12 months. Uh, it, it's hard to believe that it's just been a year. Yeah, and I mean, that's a good, I was just thinking about that um, as I was listening to my um, colleagues here that, that when we think about the last 12 months, I think what we all kind of th think about a school year, sort of like what's happened since August when school started. But really, when we think about the last 12 months and where we were last January, I mean, schools, many schools were still fully remote and they were struggling with how to get back at all. So if we're talking about a 2021 year in review, we should also think about what happened last winter and last spring. And what that was, was really a struggle to figure out a lot of hybrid education, a lot of um, just false starts, a lot of promises to go back and then changing their minds. There was just a lot of um, difficulty just literally getting schools to reopen. And I think that's what we were all sort of focused on at the beginning of the year. And then as we got into this fall, I think the focus turned to, like you said, everybody's reopened now. It's just about how do you make school effective um, and how do you make up for the very real losses? Yeah, and now we're ending the year with number of infections rivaling where we were a year ago. Uh, a lot has changed, and at the same time, uh, a lot of uncertainty. Okay, so let me not uh, sort of bend COVID off to the side, but I think COVID is going to affect most of the things that we talk about. Uh, but there were other stories in 2021. Erica, did you have another one that was at the top of your list? Yeah, you know, over the course of the pandemic, what we also saw um, was a lot of parent engagement and a lot of um, 
backlash against what they had been seeing in their homes from their students' um, computer screens for the past 18 months. And um, one story that I I spent quite a bit of time on um, was one of a superintendent in Maryland who had to deal with, um, who had to manage or grapple with backlash in her community against uh, Black Lives Matter and her talking about racism um, immediately after George Floyd's death. And, you know, I took a different approach as I, as I tend to do um, and follow that story over the course of, of a year. And that means I started that story before it was called Critical Race Theory. And it was really fascinating to watch um, how that evolved from just, I don't like what you're saying to it becoming, you know, branded critical race theory, um, which people still don't quite know what that means, to really, I just, you know, this Black superintendent does not belong here. And, um, and you know, that was a really um, important piece, <clears throat> because I think it showed how a lot of this dissent sows itself over time. Um, and it really shows the evolution of what we've seen happening in school boards, school board rooms across the country, you know, I, it doesn't start in these big disruptive explosive boardrooms right it starts somewhere else and um and i think our ability to kind of show how this debate roiled one community from start to finish um was really illuminating so and certainly the whole crt Fuhrer or whatever the appropriate name for that construct is rippled out well beyond the the one community you covered in depth, Erica, Isha, Laura, where else did we see this? Um, Isha? Yeah, um, I mean, this is my primary beat <clears throat> covering um, race and opportunity. So I think I was, I saw it across the country, particularly in the uh, 12 or so states that passed legislation to ban or restrict certain conversations about race and racism and sexism. And uh, we saw a lot of uh, those conversations, as Erica said, evolve over the past year. Um, I think uh, even if you start in April or May when a lot of these laws were passed, over the past uh, half a year, they've evolved to boardroom fights and they've evolved into teachers uh, losing their jobs, like that one teacher in Tennessee, for example, who uh, was fired from his school district for uh, teaching about white privilege as fact. And uh, when we went to Tennessee, we saw a lot of those like underlying tensions and they had been there for years, but now they have a new name and they have legislation supporting some of the anti-CRT and I put that in quotes, um, arguments. And also most recently we've seen a lot of legislation against these laws in Oklahoma, in Arizona, um, now in New Hampshire most recently. So I think there's been a lot of like development. First, there was backlash to the Black Lives Matter movement through these through the passage of these laws. And now it seems like there is going to be further backlash to the laws in, for, in terms of like educators and teachers unions uh, banding together and saying, we have the right to talk about race and racism in the classroom. Um, in a way that, you know, obviously isn't like divisive as these some of these laws claim. And 
I think we're going to see some of that unfold further in 2022 as these legal battles go on. I mean, I think the other piece that we need to keep in mind is that this was, whole thing was also driven, it was a backlash to the work that's being done on equity around the country, but it was also very much caught up in politics. Um, there is a, a lot of one of my memorable stories from this last year was a look at this guy named Christopher Rufo from Seattle, who has done a lot to um, really advance um, this on um, in conservative circles and to um, label this work as critical race theory and to uh, bring light to sort of extreme examples of where um, equity work is being done in both in schools as well as in corporate settings and really upset people a lot about it. And I think that we um, we really saw this gain a lot of political attraction as well as sort of just well beyond the normal um, education conversation. Um, and of course, it I would say at its most fulsome blooming in Virginia in the Virginia governor's race where um, it was about a lot of things and it's a complicated thing. It's very, it's way oversimplification, oversimplified to say that um, Glenn Youngkin, the Republican won based on a debate over critical race theory. Um, but that was certainly one of the things that came up um, about how you talk about race and also about where, um, what parents' roles should be. Um, as Erica said, you know, a lot of parents were saying, you know, hey, I don't like what I'm seeing. And he really tapped into that. And uh, the Democrat, McAuliffe, really played into that as well when he said in a debate that he didn't think the parents had any uh, had any say about this. So all of that idea of um, I think this idea of parental control, um, that conversation is something we are definitely going to see going into 2022. And um, just the mixing of politics and um, race and education was, I think, a very big, a very big part of 2021. So there's two things that I want to talk about here. One is the politics, but let's put that on the back burner for a second, because right now I have a, an audience of three reporters who have definitely had to deal with sort of the semantics of CRT. And when there's obviously this construct that is a political football, it's a, a, a huge issue. And there's also this name, well, it's critical race theory, a name which hardly anybody is quite satisfied as far as capturing the actual thing that we're debating. My question for you three is, how hard has it been to write about this when the name for it that's used in popular media is not very specific. So it got easier over time to talk about this because we all got used to sort of how to use this language because it is complicated. But I think that there's an important point here, which is that a lot of reporters I noticed would have language in their stories where they would just say critical race theory, you know, which is not taught in any K-12 schools, um, blah, blah, blah. And that's true, critical race theory is not taught. It's not like boys and girls, today we're gonna to learn about critical race theory. That isn't, that isn't a thing, um, it's an academic idea. But I think that it is important to know that there is something there because critical race theory takes as its starting point, the idea that there is systemic racism and white privilege in our country and that it's baked into our institutions. And uh, there has been a lot of work in school, both to talk about those issues as well as to look at school policies themselves through that lens. And, and that is real. I mean, that has happened. And there are people who don't like that. 
So that is where the debate is. Whether you call it critical race theory or not is almost beside the point. There is a there is a real um, substantive disagreement about whether um, how important race is, whether it's something we need to be looking at on a regular basis or it's just sort of off on the side, and um, whether um, we do in fact have systemic racism and white privilege, which um, not everybody is prepared to say that we do. For me, um, I have kind of frankly taken the approach that I am not going to engage in a manufactured controversy. Um, the reason that I needed to even include the words critical race theory in the story that I wrote um, is because, again, by the time my subject was on her way out and at the height of, of the backlash, the, the folks in that county had been able to use the label to describe a, what they really had a problem with which was her talking about Black Lives Matter and, and, and encouraging students to talk about race. So, um, so really I just used it to, to reflect, you know, this inflection point in time in the fall um, when a parent went on Fox News. Um, and by then, you know, all of what parents were protesting at that time, um, they were able to to kind of latch on to this 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 label and and like Laura said, um, you know I love the stories about Christopher Rufo. Um, he you know if you go look on his Twitter page, <laughs> you will see or read any interview with him. You will hear him and see him say, "We did it. We got we got them to call the, all of this critical race theory." He makes no bones about it, which I respect. Um, and, and so I just, you know, I have stayed away from, 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 from the word I've, I, because it, it's a, first of all, it's a body of scholarship, whether it's taught in, in elementary school or college is beside the point What this isn't about that. It is about racism. It's about how to teach it, whether to teach it. And it is, it is politically driven. And I would, it, I mean, this goes all the way back to the patriotic education in 1776 commission that was created by the Trump administration in response to the 1619 project. Um, and, you know, the, the protests, God, last year, yes, what is time anymore? Um, really, you know, you, you, we can pinpoint a lot of this to the Floyd protests. I just, I think we should just call it what it is. So it's not really difficult for me. I, I think it's difficult when I read a story that jumps through all of the hoops to, to just not say what it's about. Um, and I think we had a lot of those stories and it did a real disservice um, to the dialogue. Um, and, you know, one thing I haven't seen is, um, you know, again, it's uh, the evolution. It, now we're at parental rights. It's, it's all, it's, it's all the same thing. We just keep branding it different things. And those are legitimate debates to have. I just think, you know, as reporters, we have to push people to have them in good faith. If you don't, if you just simply don't want to, to, to have your kid learning about Ruby Bridges, then just say it, right? Like, don't make it about critical race theory. I mean, it's, it, it's just, it, it's gotten a little um, preposterous, I think, but um I just, I would also say that one thing that's been really difficult 
and I, I think we're going to go, I'm going to wander into the undercover territory is, you know, it's been alarming to, to see the lack of coverage or maybe the alarms that I think we all would raise as reporters, as anyone who functions in this democracy about banning books. It's really, I don't know if, if I'm, I'm like in la la land or something, but um, I hope in 2022, we, there's like a real robust coverage line about what it means for a democracy to, to ban books. Um, and I'm not, I don't, I don't care if it's what, what book it is. I'm not pro any one kind of book, but I just thought that that got lost this year in all of the critical race theory debate. So that, but has it been difficult to write on? I mean, Erica, you just described how you think it's just one thing, but do you have the nomenclature to be specific when these different events are coming up and ostensibly people can have different takes in different events on different issues and it doesn't all just reduce to a, a simple construct? Has that been difficult to write about and be specific about? I Sorry, if I can just... Yeah, go ahead. It has been, especially, I mean, as Laura and Erica said, the the term is, you know, sort of become like a boogeyman. It, we don't, we don't like a lot of people don't necessarily like know what it, what it means, where it came from, what it was initially used for when they are using it. And it is difficult because um, when it comes down to it, the, the laws themselves, where all of this arguably started, they're not specific about what they're banning. And a lot of the confusion and a lot of the school board fights originate because those laws were passed or because those laws were in the legislature. Like this all began, I think, because of those laws. And so if if it's if the language of the laws is not specific, that the, the confusion it'll cause will just trickle down. And so when you're describing it, you decide to avoid the term critical race theory, but there is no one succinct term to replace uh, critical race theory. And since now it's such a widely known term, and since every news organization clearly has not stayed away from it, it becomes harder for those who decide to, because there is no, you know, universally or like nationwide known term that can replace it. And it's a complicated discussion. So I don't think it should be reduced to a term, but um, as some organizations use it and some don't, and those organizations that don't try to come up with it, it just becomes clunky. And then you kind of like, you venture into the territory of, um, you know, having to read these laws and like actually try to figure out what they ban. And in a lot of cases, it's unclear. But I think the one thing is clear that they are, they are, it's an intentional effort to restrict conversations about racism. And that's what I've been saying in my stories, because I think like from having read um, all of the legislature, I think that one point is pretty clear. And however much the laws might try to mask that, it does come through. I would just say also, I've had conversations with folks um, for some future stories. And, and I have just said, like, tell me what tell me what it is that you that you don't like just explain and they're like well look at this lesson plan and I'm like wow that's for third graders that's crazy now I see oh you mean you 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 really just don't like this inappropriate <laughs> lesson plan or this a this this particular 
you know, text is not a, you don't believe it's age appropriate. I mean, I've seen like, you know, we, we see protests against, against, um, material that's really sexually explicit, right? That parents don't think is, is appropriate for their kids to be reading. Those, the, I just, that's why can't you just say that? Why are we talking? I mean, if that is what you're, you take issue with, is that critical race theory? I, I mean, you, you can, I think this became just a branding thing and um and parents and and what is what is what has been so difficult i would say to see as a reporter and to sift through as a reporter is that i think it's drowning out real concerns and real legitimate concerns that parents have about what their kids are 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 learning or being exposed to at certain ages um so i think it's you know it's been a double edged sword i don't think it's it's what it's I think it's adversely impacted um, all kinds of all kinds of folks on all all ends of this debate. It, I think that there that there's this thing this comes in a lot of different flavors. So there are some cases where there is a specific concern, and it's like when you're writing about it, it's like the important thing is to write about the thing. Like, what is the actual thing that is at issue here? What are people actually upset about? Um, but there also is when it gets into the realm of politics, the, those more um, extreme and sort of more um, uh, there things that people would be more likely to agree is out of bounds get sort of used as the example to um, try to take down a lot of other pieces too, and that gets used in a political context, not always in. Um, the, the motive is not always, let me describe this as accurately as I can. Um, it may be, let me get people upset about this and for various reasons. So I think you have to look at, it, it's different stories are about different elements of this. And, um, you know, Nat, to answer your question, I don't really find it that difficult, or at least not at this point. I feel like if you really understand what this conversation is about, then you can take the different pieces and be as specific as you can. and and and, and put it into this larger context. So, um, but yeah, if you just want to write, if you're a if you're a TV station and you're covering a, a story in in a minute and a half about a school board protest, and then you're just dropping the term critical race theory, they're upset about critical race theory, you know, and then move on, you know. Then yes, I think that is difficult and problematic. Um, but luckily, I don't think that anybody um, anyone here in our conversation um, is forced to do that. It certainly got plenty of attention. Isha, I want to turn to you because we still haven't gotten to your top story of the year, uh, holding these two constant. Uh, did you have anything else on your list that we didn't cover? Yes, I think one big story um, that I haven't brought up that I, I thought was one of the, the largest, you know, um, largest coverage topic of the year was staff shortages. And Staff shortages, especially for bus drivers and substitute teachers and custodians have always existed. But the way the pandemic exacerbated them was I think, and by the pandemic, I mean the impacts of the pandemic trickling down into this year and into the reopening of schools. I think the, the amount of staff shortages, the way the staff shortages were widespread was unprecedented. Some of the reasons behind them we're really, um, you know, uh, shining a light on the broader problem of pay 
and the number of hours and the expectations that uh, we hold from these sorts of jobs. Um, I think it also was surprising to our readers to see that it was happening across the country. Um, I was a reporter in Maine and a lot of those Northern New England states had always dealt with staff shortages because of the you know, sparse, sparsity. Um, but I think it, I think the, the uh, ubiquitousness of the staff shortages was one of the more important things that came out of this year. Yes, yeah, uh, topic, and we uh, for for listeners who missed the last episode with Dan Goldhaber and uh, Hema Zamora, we went over that that very topic. Uh, so those are some of the big stories. We have a lot more to cover, and we don't have much time to do it in. So let's go through some quick ones because in that top list we missed. Uh, the ARP funding, the largest federal expenditure for public schools in history uh, in a single bill. And we talked about COVID learning loss, but not in detail, which is probably the greatest loss of learning that we've had. And we had a new administration. And, uh, you know, you put all these three things together and it's kind of amazing. None of them made them onto the, <laughs> the list. That's it's 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 hard to remember that it was this year when we got the new administration, isn't it? Um, <laughs> a year ago, um, a year ago from today, as we tape this, uh, Donald Trump was president. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that one big, I mean, just to pick up what you just said, I mean, there, Joe Biden had a very expansive education agenda. Now, um, some of it became law, this huge amount of federal money for um, schools, which um, I think we have yet to really know what the true impact of that is going to be. Um, it's, it's hard to tell, um, truthfully, um, exactly how that money is being spent and how much of that money has actually been spent so far. And that's something I think we're going to be watching for the, in the in the coming year. Um, I think it's also um, another thing to watch for in the coming year it, that we don't really know the answer to is... Um, you know, Biden proposed universal pre-K, which is a huge, could be a huge um, change and um, expansion of public education. Um, right now, that program is not, uh, that proposal is not exactly what you would call um, alive and well. Um, maybe it's alive, but not well. <laughs> it's, it, uh, it's part of the Build Back Better um, reconciliation package that the House passed and that um, is now appears to be one vote shy in the Senate. So um, whether they, Joe Manchin, who's the person who has a problem with the whole bill, he actually does like the pre-K portion of it. So whether they're able to revive a more modest version of this bill that includes pre-K, I think we have yet to see. Um, my comment after being in Washington for a long time has always been nobody ever went broke betting against Congress doing something. Um, so the, the the smart money is usually that it falls apart, but you know maybe they maybe they will find a way to at least get that and a few other provisions through. So there is you know there's both been a big federal investment and also the promise of more. Um, but we already have seen that promise kind of diminish. He, Biden also wanted free community college that has already been jettisoned. So um, you know so we'll have to see see where this all lands. To separate that up out from the broader Biden agenda, which is a huge story, you know, outside the education space. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm curious as to you and to what your editors think about how important these big education pieces of that agenda are as stories in their own right. For instance, one would think that the 
pre-K part of this would get a lot of coverage. I mean, it is truly land-breaking if it became law. Uh, but I just wonder if that is subsumed into the larger political story or, or whether people are, are, are getting enough coverage of that or are interested in that kind of coverage. You mean coverage of the prospect of it passing? Yeah, I mean, I wonder if people are more interested in the bigger will, uh, bigger story of will Build Back Better pass than whether they are interested in will we have universal pre-K that stems from that, which would seem to be the actual thing that people might be interested in. Well, well it's really interesting just um, because that is one of the Democrats' huge problems, is that for so long, the debate over this bill has been about how much does it cost and Democrats fighting with Democrats, as opposed to what will this bill do? Um, and so I think the coverage in Washington always, um, always uh, reporters are drawn like a moth to flame to the conflict, and that's where the conflict has been. There hasn't been a lot of debate in Congress about, well, should we design universal pre-K this way or that way? Or, you know, and there hasn't been debate on the substance of it. It's been, the debate has been about cost and the scope and um, and sort of the, the intra-party conversation. So that's why that's gotten most of the coverage. Um, from my point of view, we've written a little bit about it, but um, I also think like, uh, you know, wake me up when it's over. Like, I don't necessarily think like we're going to necessarily write like a ton of stories about the of a program that may or may not actually happen. Um, I guess maybe there's a self-fulfilling prophecy in there a little bit, but, um, but, you know, maybe it does need more coverage. Yeah. I mean, I would just say I, we've done, I think all we, we can do. My um, colleague Dana Goldstein did a pretty, um, solid story about what it could look like but you know if we wrote about everything that could hypothetically happen in congress um we would be writing every day about primarily about things that never happen so um and given again the context of the year that all education reporters have have needed to pay attention to no matter what your beat is um i think you know it's just been so many starts and stops any report I mean I've written stories um about about a congressional act that changed before we could get it published I mean so um so we do you know we we monitor and we write on significant developments and frankly they're just not there just haven't been any <laughs> um outside of the you know what's happened with the larger bill um, on the ARP funding, you know, I'll just echo what, what Laura said. It's, I don't even know how much of that money is even out the door yet, let alone in districts and how it's being spent. Um, all signs in the, the districts I've spoken with, even some of the inquiries I've had um, into um, the department, like we probably won't know how that money is spent until 20. 23. Um, a lot of districts don't even know where to start. Um, many are waiting for the money to come from, you know, to be dispensed by the states. Um, and folks are, are frankly, just really hesitant to, to, to make any huge expenditures, especially on like staff, um, because we all know that with, with um, emergency relief money, you know, you usually make investments that are not sustainable. So, um, 
so yeah, that, that happened. It's just really difficult to track. And we, there have been, um, there's been some coverage from across the country, just some spot coverage um, where folks have found, you know, districts spending some of their money on athletic fields and, and stuff like that, um, which, you know, that's for them to debate. <laughs> but I don't think that's necessarily representative of how districts are, are going to spend their money. And I think as you see over the next year, you know, more, especially at the local level, um, as, you, as you see how districts are, are choosing to um, use this money in their local budgets um, and there are actual line items to track, um, you'll see a lot more of that coverage. So what about the Biden administration, new administration, new secretary of education? And we saw a lot of coverage of the uh, former Department of Education. Was, was this a lighter year of coverage? Is that just what happens when a new administration is uh, getting off the ground? Isha, how do you think coverage of the Biden administration ha has been? And ha has there just not been that much news of it? I am not a political education reporter, so I'm not sure I can speak to that uh, in you know a detailed manner. But I think uh, a lot of the coverage for of the Department of Education, the, the, the previous administration had to do with a lot of like radical and unpopular to some changes that uh, the previous uh, person in charge of the Department of Education did, and so. I think a lot of this year's coverage was not uh, so focused on the Department of Education, maybe because there are a lot more other things going on that were more you know, newsworthy, but also maybe because there weren't as many radical decisions made by uh, you know, the Department of Education this year. But again, I'm not an expert on this. I was gonna talk about learning loss, but we can come back to that. <laughs> Well, we'll get back to that. Quick question just to Laura and Erica. I mean, you know, part of this is a question about not just the Department of Education, but also how the CDC has provided, provided guidance for schools coming back online. How, how much news was there and um, how, how much was the new administration just not terribly newsworthy on education? Well, I think there was a ton of coverage on the CDC and its guidance. I mean, we wrote a lot about that. I personally wrote a lot about that. We did a lot of, um, especially early in the year, a lot of like um, deep reporting on Biden's promise to reopen schools and what that looked like and and what was driving that and where he succeeded and where he didn't. Um, so I do think on the public health side, there was quite a bit of coverage of the administration. As for the Secretary of Education though, um, I just don't think there was a lot of news there. Um, I think when you're comparing him to the 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 his predecessors, I mean, Betsy DeVos was so controversial right out of the gate. So there was a lot of interest in her and um, there was a, a lot of controversy around some of the things that she did. Um, then going back another administration, Arnie Duncan came out and he was really pushing, driving an agenda using the Department of Education to try to change policy. A lot of what you see from the current department is sort of um, a lot sort of, I would say softer. Um, you know, kind of guidance documents, cheerleading, um, you know, um, moving money out the door that Congress has appropriated. So it's a, um, you know, this is nothing negative to say about the secretary, Miguel Cardona. Um, it's just that 
it's not necessarily newsworthy in the same way um, that uh, his predecessor was. I mean, I went out with him on a bus tour across Michigan and I wrote a little story about what I saw. I spent some time with him. I mean, there's, um, it's not like we ignored him. It's just not the same level. Um, and, and, I, and from his point of view, that might not necessarily be a bad thing. Um, you know, sure. I don't know whether, whether you want to be necessarily in the news, uh, depending on what people are going to write. Indeed. Traditionally, that might be seen as him doing his job well, uh, not showing up in the news frequently. Isha, you, you mentioned COVID learning loss. How big a deal is it and how how big a story was it this year? Uh, so I, I want to say two things about learning loss. I think we've been hearing the term thrown around everywhere from policy discussions to classrooms. But I think, A, we don't know how big the learning loss is because the data we don't have is going to speak volumes when it hopefully comes in next year. A lot of schools have their own data, but it's not. it's going to be a patchwork at best because of all those standardized examinations that we don't have and that we didn't have in 2020. And so the actual scope of the of the learning loss is still unknown. And um, we don't we don't exactly know when we'll be able to fill in some of those uh, blanks in terms of the data and the information we have to gauge how much kids lost. But I think another important point that gets lost in the learning loss discussion is that uh, we talk about learning loss, but we're not talking about everything else that the students lost. And we had a, um, a contributor write in uh, to Education Week that made a great point about this, that when you ask the students, you know, they've lost, some of them has lost, have lost their families. Some of them have lost in valuable in-person time with friends. Some of them have lost the, the uh, you know, motivation to learn. So a lot of these things are, important factors because as we know, if students are not in a good mental health space, they're not going to be able to retain the information that they're given, um, especially if they're dealing with a lot loss of, you know, a family member, lack of stable internet, a lot of other factors, um, which, you know, are all also just exacerbated by poverty. So I think the discussion of learning loss moving on to next year, even when we get the data, needs to be more uh, holistic and looking at uh, the fact that it's not just, you know, did students learn the math curriculum they were given, but were students in a space to learn the math curriculum? And if they were not, how can schools address that and start to build, uh, you know, a, just a better school environment to be able to uh, facilitate, uh, you know, the facilitate the makeup process of what students lost. Sure, and Erica, you mentioned earlier about parent backlash, largely in terms of the sort of CRT framing in the Black Lives Matter story that you were talking about. But another kind of parent backlash you might think about is people leaving public schools. I mean, we saw sort of unprecedented declines in enrollments. Do we think that that is, uh, I wonder if you all think that that's some permanent uh, rollout of COVID or do we expect that to, uh, not be something down the future. It, it seems to me that if we have major enrollment declines, then that becomes a pretty persistent funding question for a lot of school systems. Laura? Well, I think it's a really important question. Um, and, you know, we saw enrollment declines for last, the you know, the first COVID school year, uh, 2019, 20, wait, 
2020, 2021. Um, and I think people were wondering, will this persist? And then we saw this year that we that it did persist, that we did see those um, enrollment drops continuing. So I do think that's an important question. I don't know that we know the answer to the question that you just asked, um, but I think it's the right question. You know, what, whether, whether we're going to see that persist, whether, it's, whether essentially um, parents uh, got out of the public schools because they wanted in-person um, school or for, were otherwise dissatisfied with what they were seeing in their public school, and then they just, and then they just never came back. Um, whether that be they went to a charter school um, where there's evidence that charter school enrollment is up or to a private school. Um, you know, in, in some cases, if you're able to access a private school, once you see what they have to offer, sometimes you're like, whoa, this is better. I don't want to go back. Um, so it, it just depends on individual. There's a lot of different things going on at the same time, but I think we'll have to see. We'll have to see what it looks like going forward. I don't have the answer. 2022 is definitely going to be, I mean, it's going to be a, a year where we really, I think, understand the depths of how much faith has been shaken in public education. Um, you know, whether it's because there are people, let's let's be for real, um, who walked, but they did not walk to a private private school because they cannot afford it. Homeschooling among black families is up. Um, we know black and Latino families um, are big supporters of charter schools anyway. Um, and, you know, but I, I think what we saw with enrollment declines, especially in kindergarten, um, where, where people just chose to, to go somewhere else or do something else until things stabilized and they haven't yet. <laughs> so, um, so I just, you know, we're, we're basically right back where we were. Um, and, and so I think it's just going to take it's going to take a while to, to see if, if people um, have any faith and, and in the, well, not have any faith. It's going to take a while to see if faith can be restored among the lost families um, in, the, in the education system. And it makes sense. I think we, we, it, it, the pandemic exposed a lot about, um, about how this works. And, and I think it really like opened the eyes um, of a lot of folks who just sent their kid to school and it was an out of sight, out of mind experience. Um, and, and understandably so, people are, having, are asking a lot of questions about um, whether a system that they believed in is actually the system that they should continue to put their kids in. It was surely a, a big hit. Well, I wanna thank you all for your time and just ask you before you leave to, to give me one area. It could be something that we've looked at or uh, something not mentioned yet, but one particular area, something that you're planning on following and writing about in 2022, uh, just as a preview of what might be in the year in review in next year's episode. Uh, Isha? Yeah, I think uh, just jumping off of the enrollment question, I think a lot of uh, enrollment data will come in next year that will actually answer the question whether students are going to return to public schools this year or not. In 2020, we lost more than 1.3 million students and every single state lost enrollment on, a, on an average. And so um, I think the, the next enrollment data will answer that question. I think I'm expecting to do a lot with data, especially as 
the Office of Civil Rights comes out with their data, which hasn't been released since 2018. So it's going to point to a lot of like discipline trends and everything else that the Office of Civil Rights records. Um, and also I think special education uh, will be a focus for me, especially how it's changed, how it's evolved. There's been a lot of discussion about special ed students returning to school and how that's been different from regular ed. So I think uh, focusing in on that is also going to be a priority. Erica? I will continue my coverage of, of civil rights. Um, that's pretty through line for me on the beat. Um, I'm actually gonna be expanding my portfolio a little bit beyond education to examine some other systems that touch the lives of, of children. Um, and um, we, I, I, you know, I, you, you heard me say it already, it, the banning books thing. I mean, we just gotta, we have got to figure out where this is going. I think it's just, I think it's a huge issue um, that has deep, deep implications and ramifications. So, um, and obviously, you know, we, we will definitely be keeping eyes on whatever may, um, may come of the, of elections, so. Laura? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think uh, all of all of the above. Um, I would just add to expand on the last point that Erica made about elections. I think that um, as we're in a, a political year, um, although I'm not sure when we're not in a political year these days, but um, <laughs> um, it's like you know, the day after election, you hear people saying, "With just uh, with just uh, uh, 17 months till the next election." Anyway. Um, I think that uh, we'll be uh, continuing to be looking at the intersection of politics and um, education and race and how they all, um, and the pandemic, I should say also, I think one thing we didn't hit was the real, very real frustration that parents had, had and to some extent have over school closures. Um, so, you know, especially, I think that there's a commitment to keep schools open on every level, um, but, Certainly, if that changes, then that also has ramifications across the board for everything we're talking about. So I'm, I'll be interested in how all of this um, combines um, in, in the context of politics next year, in addition to, to all the rest of what we've, what's been discussed here. Well, 2021 was certainly an eventful year in education. Thanks for uh, your recording uh, of it and reporting on it. And thanks for coming on the report card to talk about it today. Thanks for having us. Happy New Year. Thanks for listening to the report card with Nat Malkus. And special thanks to our guests, Erica Green, Laura Meckler, and Isha Pendarker. We'll include a link to Erica, Isha, and Laura's bios in the show notes so you can read their reporting from 2021 and the upcoming year. As always, thanks to Wesley Armstrong, who makes this podcast possible. You can subscribe to The Report Card on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, take a minute to leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. Send us your topic suggestions, comments, or questions to ed.podcast at aei.org. That's it for this episode. Happy New Year. I'm Nat Malthus.